from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Carolyn Moore, a guest co-host for Claire Wiley today. In our first segment this morning, we're going to replay an interview that former co-host Nell Larson and I held with Michael Mann. He is professor and director for science, sustainability, and the media at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of the new book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. In the book, Dr. Mann shows us the narrow climatic conditions on the Earth that allowed ecosystems and humans not only to exist but to thrive and how those conditions are now threatened and imperiled if we don't continue if we continue to warm the planet. Then in the second part of the show we'll speak with Jessica Kirby, the land and resource director for Summit County. She'll talk about her role and responsibilities as director, the land and properties under her purview, and the challenges she faces in managing them. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. I'm Chris Cherniak. I'm Nell Larson. And joining us is Dr. Michael Mann. He is the uh, professor and director for science, sustainability, and the media at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's the author of the new book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Uh, Dr. Mann, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Uh, thanks. It's great to be with you. Um, we're going to dive into the book in a minute, but I just want to get your thoughts on this article I read this morning in the New York Times. Uh, Noah just uh, cited that August was the planet's warmest August in their 174-year record. So 174 Augusts, I guess, <laughs> uh, the warmest one to date. And also follow, that follows up June and July also being the warmest, if not close to the warmest, um, with predictions saying that this year could be the warmest on record or even warmer than last year, which was really warm. The question, does any of this surprise you? Um, sadly, it doesn't. Um, you know, we expect, you know, to continue to set records for all-time warmth globally and locally, um, places that we live as we continue to heat the planet with carbon pollution from fossil fuel burning and other human activities. And there's sort of an extra ingredient. Uh, the way this normally goes, you know, temperatures fluctuate from year to year for various reasons. Um, sometimes they go down a little bit, sometimes they go up a little bit. It has to do with uh, the El Nino phenomenon and La Nina and other things that can impact temperatures. But we tend to set a new record every time we get an El Nino now hmm. because there's this upward ramp and an El Nino is just the extra kick that pretty much ensures that if we get an El Nino event, it's going to be a new record temperature for the surface of the planet. And so this El Nino arose earlier this year. It's been building through the summer. It will peak uh, sometime this winter and continue on into next year. And so those El Nino conditions are that extra push that adds to the steady ramp of warming from carbon pollution. And unfortunately, you know, we will continue to see this until we do something about the underlying problem, which is that carbon pollution. You've been studying the climate for decades, let's say. Um, you know, the IPCC reports have been coming out since the 90s or so and making predictions 
back then what uh, things would look like in 2020 and 2025. If you can go back 30 years and try to and uh, say, this is what things will look like if we don't change our behaviors in 2020. Well, it's 2023 now. Yeah. How are things unfolding? Yeah, so, you know, 25 years ago, my co-authors and I published uh, the now famous hockey stick curve, mm -hmm. which showed how unusual the recent warming is in a longer term context in more than a thousand years. And you know, uh, our fragile moment is really about the lessons that we can draw from past climate changes. And one of those lessons is that the warming that we're seeing right now is unprecedented in rate as far back as we can go. So even farther back than the hockey stick, we cannot find a single example in Earth history where the planet was warming as rapidly as it is now. Uh, back when we published the hockey stick curve in the late 1990s, you know, many of us were convinced, all right, this is the sort of evidence that will finally convince policymakers and, and energy companies that we need to act, we need to act now. And since then, every single event, uh, extreme, unprecedented event uh, that's happened, you know, we sort of say the same thing. Well, surely this <laughs> will now convince our policymakers to act. And we're so much farther down the road than we should have ever allowed ourselves to get. And that means that it's much more of an uphill climb. We're, we've got to bring carbon emissions down far more dramatically now because of decades of relative inaction. It's still possible. And this is one message of the book. When we look to the past, what it tells us, um, it tells us it's still possible to keep warming below catastrophic levels below about three degree Fahrenheit relative to pre-industrial where we'll see some of the worst consequences. We're not there yet and we can prevent, uh, you know, we, we, we can avert um, crossing that boundary if we reduce carbon emissions dramatically, but we do need to act and we need to act now. Okay, so w w when do you think we might cross that three degree Fahrenheit boundary? So with business as usual, in other words, if we don't right. um, pass any further policies or engage in any uh, additional global agreements to further ratchet down carbon emissions, then it's just a matter of a decade or two uh, that we will cross that threshold. Hmm. And so, you know, the good news is that carbon emissions have flattened. They're no longer rising. And that's because there has been some policy progress. That's the good news. The bad news, there hasn't been enough policy progress to bring those car, not just bring those carbon emissions to a plateau, but to ramp them down. And so, you know, many of us are looking at COP28, uh, the next international climate conference later this year as perhaps the last opportunity for the countries of the world to make the commitments necessary to keep warming below those catastrophic levels. You point out that, you know, as you say, the conditions that allow humans to live and to thrive are, are fragile. And that's a really sort of like narrow envelope of climate in which we can live. Where, you know, where is that? What is that um, temperature? What do those conditions look like? Yeah, well, you know, it, there was this roughly 6,000-year period uh, the pa uh, prior to the Industrial Revolution, and that's really what I call, you know, that was our moment in a sense where the climate, the global climate, was remarkably stable, and we built our entire global infrastructure that now serves a population of more than 8 billion people. We built it for that climate, the climate that existed, the stable climate that existed for, you know, at least eight millennia. 
And now what we're doing is we are dramatically warming the planet and changing the climate. And we do not have the adaptive capacity to, you know, to, 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 to keep up with those changes and to continue to flourish as a civilization uh, if we continue on that course. And so that's what makes this a fragile moment. We haven't yet left that sort of envelope of adaptive capacity. We can adapt to the changes we've already caused. But if we continue to warm the planet further and those extreme weather events, those heat waves, floods, droughts, wildfires get that much worse, then pretty soon it will start to call into question, you know, the stability of our global civilization. So that's what makes this a fragile moment. Right. But, you know, those that are kind of denying the problem or ignoring the problem uh, say that, oh, three degrees, you know, what's the big deal? Uh, We we've learned to adapt to uh, Arctic-like conditions. We live up in the Arctic, and we live in the tropics, and the, the coldest places on the planet, and the warmest places. We can adapt. Uh, how do you respond to attitudes like that? Yeah, we, we've already seen sort of our infrastructure, our supply chains, our distribution systems start, start to fray uh, at the edges mm-hmm. in response, obviously, a pandemic um, and, and, and there's an interesting question to ask about how environmental destruction might be leading to more uh, of these deadly pandemics. Um, again, sort of underscoring this unsustainable path that we're on. But fundamentally, these extreme weather events um, have disrupted our you know, food chains and distribution systems, uh, supply chains. And you know, we see how quickly things can fall apart when we're denied the food, the water, um, and the space that we're used to. And that's really the problem. We've got now more than 8 billion people. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a population that by some estimates is almost an order of 10 greater than our natural carrying capacity. In other words, what the planet could support in the absence of this remarkable infrastructure we've created that leverages our civilization. So as that infrastructure starts to crumble at the edges and we're seeing it fray at the edges, pretty soon we don't have the capacity to, to, you know, to, to continue to provide the, the needs, the resources for more than 8 billion people on this finite planet. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Mann. He's the author of the new book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. So let's talk about the past conditions and some of the lessons learned. One chapter you title is Hot House Earth. What is Hot House Earth or uh, P-E-T-M as, uh, as, as it's described? What is it? What were the consequences and, and what uh, were the lessons that we could, are the lessons we can learn from that? Yeah, the, the so-called PETM or the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum. And I know it just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of the jargon here is unavoidable, but this is a really important geological event. Uh, it actually happened about 10 million years after the demise of the dinosaurs. And, and that's an interesting story, of course, in its own right, mm-hmm. a, a, a major extinction event. Uh, but this was about 10 million years uh, later, about 56 million years ago. And the planet had started out 
already sort of quite warm, uh, sort of a hothouse climate with tropical forests reaching into polar regions. And then on top of that, there was a massive input of carbon dioxide, the same greenhouse gas that we are producing by burning fossil fuels today. That was a natural release of carbon dioxide due to unusually intense and rapid sort of volcanic input of carbon into the atmosphere. And so when we say that was a rapid event, it happened over tens of thousands of years. Geologically speaking, that's a rapid event. Mm -hmm. What we're doing today, we're warming the planet over tens of years, so so much faster. And yet this is probably our best natural analog for a quote unquote rapid natural warming of the climate. And here's one of the lessons for us. Uh, the climate, the global average temperature probably reached as high as 90 degrees Fahrenheit, almost unimaginably warm. And large parts of the planet would be too hot, for example, for human beings to exist without you know, air conditioning, without a way to retreat from that heat. We saw animals like horses shrink in size by about 30% over a period of you know 10,000 years or so. That is a rapid sort of um, adaptation, if you will. That's natural selection acting at a very rapid pace. And what it means was that if you were a large animal, um, natural selection was selecting against you. Massive numbers of larger animals died off and that puts selective pressure on getting smaller and smaller because it's a way to get rid of heat more easily. So when people say, well, we'll just adapt to the heat, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's adaptation for you. But when you have when when you have adaptation, when you have selective pressure that's that great, it means that massive numbers of organisms are perishing, are dying. They don't pass on their genes, the ones that survive do. And so, yes, we can adapt as a species to uh, massive warming, but at the cost of tens of millions of, uh, of unfortunate losses of life as a result. Yeah, I, I always like to say, like, it's, it's really not about the planet surviving. The planet has always survived, and it will survive, uh, you know, with or without us, preferably without us. Um, <laughs> it's, it's about 8 billion people, and, of course, the, the thousands and thousands of plants and animals that are also at risk here. Uh, yeah. I, that's what I think, you know, people don't quite grasp well enough. Yeah, you know, and it's it's interesting. I sometimes uh, phrase it that way, and you know, it depends on what you mean. When I talk about the planet, well, I don't mean just a lifeless orb <laughs> floating <laughs> in space heated by the sun. Right. What we mean by our planet, of course, we mean a thriving planet with life, including us. So it sort of depends on what we mean by that for sure. Um, but, you know, it, it, it won't be the same planet without us and without other um, living things that we've come to know. And a good friend of mine, uh, a leading climate scientist and a leading climate communicator, uh, Catherine Hayhoe, um, mm -hmm. Has, uh, often says, you know, it, it's it's people, not polar bears, <laughs> to right. sort of drive home that point. Um, and I would sort of gently tweak it a bit. It's people and polar bears. Yes. It's not just, you know, I want a planet that has the beauty of these magnificent organisms, these magnificent creatures, these megafauna, polar bears that live up in the Arctic and walruses and all these other amazing species. It's part of the wonder and beauty of the world. We want to preserve that. But it's also about us. It isn't just about exotic creatures way off in the Arctic. It's about devastating 
extreme weather events that are taking lives now that are impacting all of us. And in the book, I tell a story, you know, we all have a climate story now. Um, mm -hmm. And I have a story how climate uh, directly impacted us when we were in Phoenix with our daughter when she was younger, woke up in the middle of the night, she couldn't breathe. Um, that was the day that it was too hot for airplanes to take off at the Phoenix airport, mm. if you remember that mm -hmm. report. We were there that night coming back from the Grand Canyon, woke up in the middle of the night, our daughter couldn't breathe. She was suffering uh, from an asthma attack brought on by the ex excessive heat and the high levels of uh, ground level ozone. And so that's when climate change hit us, it hit home literally. It impacted us directly. And I think we all have stories where we have neighbors or friends or family members who are feeling those devastating consequences. So it's, it's here, it's real. We're dealing with the climate crisis now. And the question is how bad are we willing to let it get? Well, you, you did mention that carbon emissions have flattened uh, globally, which is, which is encouraging news. But yet, uh, we need to, you know, decrease our carbon em emissions. How much warming, though, is already kind of baked into our conditions, even with flattened carbon emissions? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that question because, you know, listeners thus far listening to this uh, program could be getting pretty depressed. Um, you know, it, it's uh, a monumental Michael, challenge. Michael, that's our, that's our show's uh, sub thing. <laughs> yes, that's uh, where you live. We go right, <laughs> Nell and I go right to therapy after every show. So. Oh, I understand. Yeah, no, um, I, I have a friend who used to write for the New York Times who described herself as being on the dystopia beat. Um, and, 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 and so here's a little bit of good news. Okay. A little bit of good news. We'll take um, it. You know, <laughs> uh, you know a revised understanding, better modeling of the Earth system that's much more comprehensive. It deals with, for example, the complicated way that the oceans take up carbon. They take carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, so one of the things we now understand that we didn't before is that if we bring carbon emissions to zero, the surface of the planet stops warming up almost immediately. We used to think that there would be additional decades of surface warming locked in from what we call thermal inertia, just the sluggish response of the oceans that right. continue to warm up in you know, response to the carbon that's already in the atmosphere. But it turns out the oceans are also pulling carbon back out of the atmosphere and those carbon pollution levels start to come down. Uh, and so it leads to the fact that when we stop carbon pollution, the surface of the planet stops warming up. So. We are, you know, we have to deal with the warming that's already occurred. Um, we, we, there's nothing we can do about that. That's baked in, and and the impacts, many of the impacts we're seeing are baked in, and we we have to instill the resilience necessary to deal with that new situation, that new normal, if you will. But we can prevent it from getting any worse if we bring those carbon emissions down to zero. And so that's what we have to do. We need policymakers, politicians who are willing to do the things we can't as individuals, to put in place policies that will move us in that direction. It's mm -hmm. something that I hope voters are thinking about going into this next election, which will determine the path we take on climate and so many other things. Circling back to the book and some of these lessons from Earth's past that can help us survive as, as humans, um, the climate crisis, um, what, what are, you know, maybe will you choose one of these other lessons and kind of share that with us? Like what are, what are some of the other time periods you're looking at that we should be referencing for our future? Yeah, you know, um, I think the, the famous uh, 
asteroid collision that killed off uh, the dinosaurs, or to be more specific, the non-avian dinosaurs, because birds are technically dinosaurs. We see bird dinosaurs all around uh, <laughs> in the form of birds, but uh, but all the other dinosaurs, in fact, every, every megafauna larger than a dog uh, perished, um, and that was a climate change event. The asteroid hit the planet, uh, ejected huge amounts of uh, particulate matter and dust and smoke into the atmosphere, blocking out the sun, cooling down the planet. And in, in the book, I, you know, there's a remarkable parallel with sort of um, the discovery of that event in the early 1980s and the emergence of concerns by Carl Sagan and others of nuclear winter that arose during the mid-1980s and even the song by the band The Police um, in the early 1980s that actually speaks to all of that. It's all sort of uh, pretty remarkable, but here's the bottom line lesson. The dinosaurs couldn't do anything. They, they couldn't, they didn't know that an asteroid was coming and they couldn't have done anything about it anyways. They had no agency. We do, we can do something uh, about this crisis. Uh, it, it, we won't have the excuse that the dinosaurs had. I, I want to turn a little bit towards uh, kind of the, the media and the message that gets out there. I always like to say that, yeah, carbon dioxide and methane concentrations are, are increasing the atmosphere and, and promoting warming, resulting in warming. But the second biggest harm that was done to uh, our planet with respect to climate change was Fred Singer and his group Science and Environmental Policy Project. Can you talk a little bit about if you can, Fred Singer and SEP. Yeah, so, you know, there has been an industry um, and it actually arose uh, during sort of the, the Cold War era and actually um, as a response to Carl Sagan who warned of the, the of nuclear winter, of the devastating consequences of an all-out nuclear war, um, which had that analogy with the, you know, the collision that killed the dinosaurs. Um, and so there was this whole industry that built up um, uh, that basically did the bidding of powerful special interests, um, uh, the military industrial complex back then, and uh, subsequently the fossil fuel industry. And people like Fred Singer came out of that era and they realized that, you know, as the Cold War concerns started to ebb, they needed some new you know, project. And that project was to help fossil fuel companies deny the threat of continued fossil fuel burning. Uh, people like Fred uh, Singer, other scientists who had impressive credentials, but basically sold those credentials to the fossil fuel industry to, um, to work as agents of misinformation, to, to basically contradict their fellow scientists, to discredit the science um, that was being done that suggested that our continued uh, reliance of fossil fuels, fossil fuel burning, and the production of carbon pollution was warming the planet. And, and here's what's so ironic. Back in 1982, and we know this because of the great investigative work of uh, Inside Climate News, mm -hmm. uh, and they uh, won a Pulitzer, uh, I believe, for this work. Um, we now know that in the early 1980s, some of the companies that were funding uh, you know, Fred Singer and other climate change deniers like ExxonMobil, their own scientists in, in reports that were secret reports that hadn't been released to the public made predictions of the consequences of continued fossil fuel burning that end up exactly where we, we are. They predicted what the increase in carbon pollution levels would be if we continued on a fossil fuel intensive pathway, and they predicted 
with great precision what the warming of the planet would be. And ExxonMobil's own scientists, these aren't the words of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or Al Gore. This is ExxonMobil's own scientists in the early 1980s. They used the word catastrophic to describe what the consequences would be if we continued on that course. And what happened? ExxonMobil and other fossil fuel companies um, helped by climate change deniers that they supported and front groups uh, and think tanks um, that were part of this constellation of climate change denialism serving the, the interests of the fossil fuel industry. Thanks to decades of inaction because of that disinformation campaign, we are now so much further down the road and we're seeing the very catastrophic consequences that ExxonMobil's own scientists predicted. Yeah, I mean, you can learn much more about Fred Singer and his ilk um, through uh, Naomi Oreskes great book merchants of doubt merchants of doubt yeah. absolutely yes you know it's it and it all comes down to in the face of uncertainty which or doubt some of us choose to ignore that uncertainty and continue as you say business as usual and others of us employ the precautionary principle and it's always that fork in the road we seem to face yeah, you know, I, I, I tell a story in, in the book about uh, my friend Ira Flato of yeah. uh, Science Friday, um, and it's from a number of decades ago. He, he uh, told the story of a politician. I'm going to forget the name of the politician, but um, you know, I think it was about the uh, the dangers posed by supersonic transport, yeah. um, uh, and the um, and so there was a hearing, and this scientist uh, came in with uh, two stacks of papers. He said, on the one hand, the science tells us that you know this could be detrimental. Uh, on the other hand, there are other scientists who call into, and, um, and the politician says, can someone just bring me a one-handed scientist? Right. <laughs> Senator Muskie, I think it was. Yeah, it was Muskie. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was yeah. Senator Muskie. Yeah, he wanted the answer. Uh, What's the answer? And he got two. And he got two answers. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and it and it really does underscore the importance of you know scientific uncertainty because many think it's a reason for inaction, but it's just the opposite, as you said, the precautionary principle. Look, there's only one planet that we know of in the solar system in the universe that can support us and other life um, there is no planet b and so if there is any possibility that the actions we are taking are fundamentally undermining the our, our planetary support systems then our actions should certainly weigh on the side of precaution right. and it's even worse than that because <laughs> when we look at climate science and how it's evolved as we have understood more and i talk about this quite a bit in the book because there's so many examples and some of those examples come from the past paleoclimate but as we learn more as we understand the climate system better what we're finding is that some of these consequences are happening sooner than we expected um, and the magnitude hmm. of the impacts is greater than we expected uncertainty isn't our friend if anything it's a reason for even more concerted action well now i can't help myself but we got well, one more minute or so, but just yeah. read last week that the uh, National Snow and Ice Data Center is suggesting that the Arctic could be ice-free in in another five or ten years, much faster than earlier predicted. 
Last 30 right. seconds. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. Yeah. If you looked at where the climate models were um, just 10 years ago, the most extreme models said, yeah, at the end of the century, maybe yeah. we might have a, a nice free Arctic. The observations are trending in a different direction. They're telling us that, yeah, it could be a decade or two. And the reason there are processes that weren't in the models that the real world allows some of these, pro these, these changes to happen faster. And that's what we appear to be seeing. All right. The name of the book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. The author is Michael Mann. Dr. Mann, as always, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Uh, thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Carolyn Wara. And joining us in the second part of the show is Jessica Kirby. She is the Land and Resource Director for Summit County, and she's here to talk about her uh, roles and responsibilities as, as director and also uh, some of the programs and projects she's overseeing. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us this morning on this Green Earth. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start, well, with a little background on, on yourself. Um, what, who are you and uh, how did you get this job? Uh, and, and what are your roles and responsibilities as the director? Yeah. for this very, very large county? That's a really large question, too. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, I uh, originally am from Colorado. I uh, grew up in Littleton, um, went to school at Colorado State University, um, received my natural resources degree there, and then uh, soon after college did some ski touring around the West and then ended up in Logan, Utah with my husband. Um, so that's how we were brought to the Wasatch Front, and I've been here ever since. Um, worked for the State Trust Lands Office for several years down in Salt Lake, um, and then... And what, what's involved in State Trust Lands? What are you doing there? So I was actually the database manager for the entire state, managing their land database, um, leases across the state. It was about 5.1 million acres that we right. managed. Uh, yeah, so I did that for about 11 years. Okay. Um, after that, we moved up to Park City um, after having kids and um, wanted to be closer to my family and just kept some eyes on um, opportunities to come work um, in our community and ended up uh, with Basin Recreation for almost five years. Mm. Uh, built their open space program there and uh, did it successfully enough to be brought over to the county to do it yet again with our facility here at the Natural Resources Department. Okay, so... Um, you're a department of one? I am a department of one right now. So far? So far. I did have um, a coordinator position. Um, so she, since she was with me for about six months and then had to move on. Okay. So I do have an open position right now. If anybody's yep. looking for employment, I do have an open position um, okay. for a program manager and project manager to assist me in all this work that we'll be talking about. And I guess uh, if anyone's interested, they can go to the county website and look, do a search on that. Absolutely, yes. Okay, and you also have some volunteers that assist you. We'll get into that. We'll get into that, to that because what are some of the projects that you are uh, focused on right now? Yeah, I mean, originally um, was brought on to take over the uh, Weber Watershed Resilience Program, uh, which is a forest health and watershed restoration project that works cross-boundary with the Forest Service in the state. Um, so that was my first big task. Um, that is um, includes me fundraising for about $5 million a year hmm. um, and trying to create an endowment fund uh, that can be put aside for retreatments um, to 
have a consistent funding stream. So it's a creative um, way of, of looking at land management, um, thinking more of an endowment rather than constantly going to general funds uh, for ongoing maintenance and management. We've been very successful with the program. We were funded through um, an innovation finance um, and uh, grant through the National Forest Foundation, which kickstarted my position along with some seed funding from the state's um, uh, shared stewardship program. So that's how I was brought on. Um, and since then, uh, we've passed the uh, $50 million bond that has accelerated the work and scale of, of our department and um, has created the properties that I hopefully will talk about here. So the bond passed in 2021? 21. 21. And since then, we've kind of worked on two major projects. Am I remembering that right? The your ranch in Camas, and then the 910? Yeah, and we've, um, our first purchase was actually the Anders um, Conservation Easement over on the west side, um, South Summit area. Um, and then our second purchase was the Your Ranch. And then our third um, option agreement that we went under was the 910. So that's a lot of progress already <laughs> since the bond <laughs> passed. Like I feel like the bond passed and then we just started thinking about what we're gonna do and all of a sudden we have three major really impactful pieces of property that you're working on. We have increased our county ownership by 107% in a little less than a year. So let's go through those real quick. You said Anders Ranch. What is that? What is the size of it? And what's the goal there? The Anders Family Farm was brought to us by Summit Lands Conservancy. It's a, a family working farm. Um, it is a conservation easement where the family retained the ownership rights to the property and Summit Lands Conservancy retained um, the conservation easement. I believe it was a 99 acre parcel if I remember right. Um, and you know the, the, the point of having that conservation easement is to continue family farming, to keep agriculture in our rural community on the east side um, and to preserve watershed in the Camas Meadows. And um, conservation easements, are all three of these um, under conservation easements? We explain that to our listeners or are they each under their own special situation? Yeah, it's a good question. They're all very special. Okay. <laughs> the, the Anders Farm is a secured conservation easement that's done um, and actually has been funded fully and has been executed. So that one's good to go. The Year Ranch is in a planning phase right now. Um, you may have heard recently that Summit Lands just are secured $22 million um, in an RCPP grant. I'm not sure what RCPP stands for, so I can't answer that. Um, but they have secured some additional funding to help leverage the bond. So we're working very closely with Summit Lands. Um, they're hoping to put some of those funds towards the Year Ranch uh, for conservation. Uh, right now, the plan on the Year Ranch is to preserve the north portion of the property under conservation um, easement, which is um, th what we're calling the, the Camas Meadow parcel of, of the ranch. And if you've been out there, you'll notice there's quite a bit of agricultural buildings and historic um, structures. There's the old dairy. And so we're working through a plan with um, Camas City, Francis City, um, our council, our staff to figure out how to program that that property and, and potentially recoup some funding. Um, the Year Ranch is a special one in the fact that it might not all be under conservation easement. There could be some development that occurs to mm. recoup some funding. Um, the, and How many acres are we talking about? Your ranch, ranch is 840-ish wow. acres. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, the Meadows portion is 185 acres, which is north of 248. Okay, so that's, so there's those two properties. Then there is? The monster. Okay, <laughs> your words. <laughs> Otherwise known as 910. Correct. Talk a little, give us a little uh, background on that. Yeah, it's, it's a big 
property. It's over almost 9,000 acres. Wow. Um, it is located just outside About of... 15 square almost 15 square mm -hmm. miles. Yeah. Wow. It's, For... it's the biggest um, land acquisition that our county has ever um, gone after. Um, it is located just outside of Jeremy Ranch. So if you go through the neighborhood past the golf course, uh, the road turns to dirt. And if you follow that road, um, it, you'll end up at um, East Canyon State Park. So some folks use that back way. It's a, it's a one and a half lane dirt road mm -hmm. um, that you can travel. Um, so we have a hundred, almost a thousand acres that is in Morgan County. So we're now owners of a part of Morgan County, much like Bonanza Flat, um, has some ownership in Wasatch County. Um, and then the remaining of the property uh, basically follows the Salt Lake Summit County line to Parley's um, Summit and then down uh, behind Moose Hollow, Jeremy Ranch area, up to the preserve, uh, almost to where Flying Dog uh, makes the turn at the very top and then takes down over to Mormon Flats. And we actually own a small portion of Mormon Flat Campground. That's fascinating. I didn't realize it stretched so far into Morgan County. I thought it was primarily Summit County land. Um, and then all the way up to kind of where Parley's. Yeah, yeah, when you're on the road, it's basically everything you can see from ridgetop to ridgetop. And what's special about that property? It's an incredibly diverse, incredibly valuable piece of land that has been almost a, a wilderness setting. I mean, the, the owners, um, well, let me step back just the history of the property. Mm -hmm. um, it's been ranched um, since it's been, um, since it was homesteaded um, in the 18, early 1800s. Um, there's the homestead cabin out there. It was originally a sheep ranch. Uh, the Jeremy family is actually the, the original owners of the mm -hmm. ranch. The ranch was quite significantly larger at the beginning and it's been cut down into smaller pieces over time. Uh, David Bernalfo, who is the current landowner, um, got ownership, I believe in the early 80s or late 90s, I can't recall, uh, and has owned it ever since. Um, he's ran cattle out there. But really, it's been a preserve. There hasn't been public access on it. There's not public trails. There's a few miles of two-track roads on the property. But it really is just a an oasis for plant, wildlife. Uh, you know, it's got four miles of East Cannon Creek, which is a an incredible resource for the mm -hmm. eastern part of Summit County. And it has just an, an amazing opportunity to provide resilience for our community, to um, provide you know, climate research mm -hmm. to do education and recreation. So there's no trailheads there. It's not like I could drive out there, find a trail, park off the side of the road, and and walk on trails. It's not publicly accessible. Yeah. So first and foremost, right now, nothing has changed. Okay. Um, so we are under option on the property, but we do not own the land just yet. The county does have a lease on the property so that we can enter. Um, and we, we can give permission to enter the property, but for right now, we're treating it as it hasn't changed at all. Um, it is private property, um, and we ask the public to respect that until we have plans in place for our, uh, for our public recreation access. But um, historically, um, the, the public road that goes through the middle of the property has been used by recreationalists for years. Mm -hmm. um, you can park on the road. Um, you know, gravel bikers will use it, runners, Monza strollers. I mean, it's it's just incredibly used. I you, you will not drive by there and not see 10, 15 cars, hmm. even before our acquisition. It's just, it's a great walk. It's scenic. It's got the river. Along the road, again, the road, along the road, on the road, not road. off the road. Correct, okay. just on the, the public county road. Yeah. Um, 
Um, is like um, fishing allowed right now? Like I could go fishing in East Cannon Creek? It's one of the number one questions we get asked. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, yeah. Um, so right now, no. Um, and the reason is we need to actually figure out if it, we can sustain a recreational fishery. Um, East Cannon Creek has um, been listed as an impaired um, stream in 2000. I believe we're not impaired anymore due to some efforts that the sewer district has helped with removing some phosphates out of the water. Um, but it still is, you know, high, you know, it gets high temperatures in the summer. Mm. The fish are very stressed. We, we have had DNR, uh, the Division of Wildlife Resources out there, um, and they've done some fish shocking to see, you know, what's in the water. Could we support a fishery? Uh, they did find significant amounts of fish, but they also didn't find significant juveniles, which is a, a, mm -hmm. a sign of some kind of stress. We're not being able to sustain the populations that they want to see. And so before we open it up to the public for fishing, we want to make sure that it's, it's a, a viable and sustainable source. We're speaking with Jessica Kirby. She is the Land and Resource Director for Summit County, and we're talking about uh, her programs and projects that she's overseeing. Uh, including the 910 property that we're, we're chatting about now. And you're saying that this is a 9,000-acre plot of land that you, uh, right now the county is, is not the formal owner of, of the land. Um, that will come, you know, hopefully down the road, so to speak. Uh, but you're doing work out there. You're studying and assessing the property. So let's talk about what that... Uh, those field assessments look like and and how you are, are doing this all by yourself <laughs> if if you are I'm not actually doing it all by myself Good. I might be the only paid employee but I do have a lot of help from our community it's it's been incredible to see um, the interest uh, from not only practitioners and professionals but from our community members to just want to get out there and help in any way they can um, so first and foremost we you know the one of the first things we did on the property was to create our ambassador program um, we received over 60 applications in less than two weeks uh, we enlisted 25 of those ap um, applications and trained them and we've we're into the program about a month and a half and it's incredibly successful uh, get into a little bit of details on that in a second mm -hmm. Uh, but other than that, we've, we've had uh, the Department of Natural Resources uh, reach out. They've been wanting to study the stream stretch for many years and haven't had access. Uh, so they've been out on the property several times. I've had university students uh, reach out to me. We were working with a capstone project at Utah State University with some students um, directly looking at, can it be a recreational fishery? They're studying and they're going to be putting a report together in December mm. um, for us to review. So it's, it's a fun project that, that they're doing as volunteers. So it seems like you're very much at information gathering state on the 910. You have ambassadors out, you know, seeing what's there. You have, you know, students coming and researching what's happening. Um, I attended the council meeting where council approved the 910 acquisition and the purchase and everything there and there was lots of public comment on things people wanted to see you know I'd like to see this I'd like to see that I'd like to see this um, how are you going through the process of what we're gonna actually long-term do with the 910 range great question mm. yeah uh, there are a lot of wishes uh, we're not going to be able to grant all of them, uh, but we are considering them all at this point. Uh, right now, it's a very blank slate. Blank slate. Um, this property has not been programmed, so we have one chance to do this, and we're going to do it meticulously and slow, um, on, intentionally. 
Um, we'd like to uh, work with our local practitioners in the area that are experts in fields, and we have set up a, an opportunity, which I'm calling um, roundtables, practitioner roundtables. We've already hosted two of those, one on the topic of conservation and one on the topic of recreation. We'll have future ones on grazing and um, uh, ranching management. We'll have a, f a future roundtable on watershed management. And what those roundtables are doing is just having brainstorm discussions, trying to come up with, uh, you know, what are you, what are the three top goals of this group of people who are coming from all different perspectives? Um, what are the challenges that we're bringing to this? And so, out of these roundtables, we'll come up with some challenge and goal statements that will then be brought to the public and gather the public's information, bring those back to the roundtables, work with staff and council, and then work again with the public through the process to get these plans in place. It'll be a very collaborative um, and transparent process. And oh, you go. No. Well, I w we got about five more minutes. I want to talk about the ambassador program, what they're doing, and t share with us some of the things they've discovered already. Oh, it's an, it's absolutely incredible. Every day, every day, I get um, we, we have a Slack channel which uh, one of our ambassadors helped set up um, that is informing the whole group of the observations, the photographs, uh, what they're finding out there. We've seen every. We've seen turkey tracks. We've seen mountain lion tracks. We've seen bear tracks. We've seen um, coyotes. I mean, every part of the wildlife community has been seen on this mm -hmm. property. Um, they have been walking game trails, running game trails, collecting that data, um, giving me the the GPS tracks for that. That's informing the management uh, of of the property long term. Um, one of my ambassadors has taken it amongst himself just to pick up trash while he's out there. No one asked him to do that, right. but he's, he's doing it. He's, I think he's found like 20 balloons that have just fallen from the sky that are tied up in oak brush, and he just brings them out. And so it's just invaluable amount of resources that they're bringing to the table, extending my reach and allowing us to, you know, to look and manage this property. I've seen an ambassador up there when I've been there before. So if you see someone wearing like a bright colored vest, uh, uh, and they, they're volunteering for Jess and helping her out. They do wear clothing Correct. to identify themselves. Yeah, that's and important. that's intentional as well. Um, anybody on the property who doesn't have a vest should not be there. Um, so that is um, one of the, they are bright orange. You'll see these little dots up on the up on the hillsides and, and those are our ambassador programs. And the ambassadors always go with a buddy. They always, yeah, if you're going to be an ambassador, you can't gonna go explore the property Yeah, by they're yourself. required to be with a buddy or to have uh, some kind of communication device that works offline, so something like a Garmin inReach. So they're collecting all this data, has there been any evidence of uh, poaching? I know that's a that's a real, real problem. It is a real problem, yeah. We had one confirmed case of a poaching incident that was before our ambassador program was put into place, um, just shortly after our, our program um, was uh, put out there, and we have not had a confirmed um, poaching incident since. You know, there has been a uh, report of seeing some tracks, footsteps, you know, mm. coming in at different parts, but it's hard to tell if it's an ambassador track or if it's another um, uh, person coming on the property, but it, it's being reported, and it's being reported where they see it. We know exactly where to look. It's, it's giving us eyes and ears on the property through this ambassador program that's letting us inform where um, future management and future attention can be put on the property. So you mentioned, you know, you're getting lots of data already with respect to animals, the, the presence of uh, ground-based animals, let's say. But you also said that you have some people out there who are birders, mm -hmm. plenty of birders in, around here, and, and she has years of birding data. 
yeah. to share. Shared 140 individual species that have been collected over the last 20 years, um, which is incredible. And some rare species that she's seen out there. I'm not a birder, so I won't say what species they oh. are, but. Um, just, you know, the community has come out in ways that has just been so incredible to share this information of, you know, they're, you know, we call it citizen science, but right. they're just doing it on their own. And they're willing to share that information with us to inform our management of the property and, and, and offering their skill set and saying, hey, well, maybe I'll run a, a birding workshop for you when, you when that time comes. Are you so. still looking for more ambassadors if someone wants to join? Yeah, um, unfortunately, we, we do have a wait list. Um, we are not actively looking for ambassadors, but if, if you're interested, please go sign up. Um, but do realize that you're going to be placed on a wait list. And that the future hope is that we will get um, citizen science groups going. We'll do some rotation of the ambassadors as uh, folks, you know, ebb and flow through the program. Um, so having an in, just even having a list of interested folks is, is very valuable. And the minimum requirement for ambassador, I think, is eight hours a week. Or something um, like a month. month. Okay. Yeah. Eight yeah. hours a month. Yeah. Um, age range? All over the board. Yeah. Anybody? Um, I think my youngest is 16. My oldest wow. might, might be in his 80s. Okay. Good, good projects yeah. for, for the kids. I mean, one of our students. ambassadors actually um, built the, a cabin on the hill with his father that had since been transferred to the current landowner, hadn't been on the property for 20 years, and and you know, wanted to go back to the property, look at it, share his insight. I mean, it, it's it's been a 20-year um, lapse in his ability to be on the property, and he's just been able to get out there. And all right, uh, last minute. Um, I know you got lots of things going on, but is there a website planned to, so people you can start sharing some of these data and finding and you know yeah. and shout this out? So we do have a website set up, and I'm working on getting um, a portal where data can be um, pulled down from. It's uh, summitcounty.org backslash 910ranch. If you go there, that's where we're going to be pub uh, publishing public notices for meetings that will be coming up over the winter um, and any of this data that we put together in, uh, in that portal, showing maps, photographs, stuff like that. Jessica Kirby, she is the Land and Resource Director for Summit County. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on really the Screen Earth. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Welcome back to the Screen Earth. We got a just a couple minutes, and Carolyn and I have a, a I calendar we, event. We each have community events to share. All right, I'll you go, go first. first. Um, tonight, Recycle Utah is partnering with Summit County Stormwater Team um, to do some trivia at Park City Brewing. Um, so Recycle Utah is going to take around, and the Summit County Stormwater Team is going to take around. So, come test your knowledge on all things trivia. Is free to play. Um, drinks and dinner available for purchase. Um, it starts at 6.30, but all your members from the team need to be there to be seated. So I recommend getting there between 6 and 6.15 and have everybody on your team in place. You'll get a table and you'll start playing at 6.30. And the questions are going to be all about stormwater? Stormwater and recycling. Stormwater and recycling. Study up. <laughs> Chris, you might be good at this. I wish I could attend. Uh, one thing tonight. I am attending is the League of Women Voters uh, meeting, uh, which is uh, at 11 a.m. this morning. Uh, it's uh, via Zoom uh, because the, the topic this morning is the Utah Agricultural Optimization Project, reducing water usage to preserve the Great Salt Lake. Uh, Hannah Fries, environmental scientist and manager of the optimization project, will be giving a, a talk. Uh, just do a search on uh, Summit County uh, Wasatch County League of Women Voters, and you'll get to the website, and there'll be a Zoom connection that you can click on if you're interested in joining. That's 11 a.m. this morning.
You can email us your thoughts, comments, and ideas for topics and stories you'd like us to cover at our email address, thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. The interviews for this show will be posted on the KPCW website later today. Thanks again for joining us. And, hey, thanks again to our uh, guest, Jessica Kirby, Summit County Land and Resource Director. Uh, thanks for joining us. And remember, this is KPCW, 91.7 FM, Park City. Tune in and listen like a local. Carolyn, thank you for thanks. joining us. Thanks for week. having me. As always, well, it's a pleasure.